Good morning. Where would everybody go? I'm right here. Right at the kids' stuff. Dad's in the bathroom. Oh, uh, okay. He heard we were fixing to start church, so he decided to go to the restroom. Yeah. Uh, so, Sylvia, if you're watching this, we're praying for you. Everybody else who's watching this, if you're still watching after nine minutes of no music, uh, six minutes of no music, it's almost better. Um, welcome. And uh, be in prayer for Sylvia, who is sick on Mother's Day and is unable to be here at church, but also unable to be with her family on Mother's Day. And that's, that's rough. It's got to be. So you are with us in spirit, Sylvia. We're praying for you. I hope you have a lovely day in spite of not feeling well. Uh, this morning, we will be wrapping up our series on the Holy Spirit. Uh, I have a few handouts. If we get through all the handouts, we'll be done. If not, we'll finish up next week. Uh, so, Josh, you good and comfortable? Any handouts? Back up here and hand these out. So we're going through, firstly, all the New Testament <laughs> references that have been misapplied to the Holy Spirit. That basically means, could you not? Did you get one for yourself, Josh? Yeah, I did. Okay. So this is misapplied New Testament references to spirit baptism. Now, who knows what we mean when we say spirit baptism? Huh? Isn't it where the Holy Spirit comes in? Uh, you're, you're thinking of indwelling, yeah. and that is different. And that is actually kind of what we're talking about. So you're not so way off in left field. Like, is, the, is the spiritual baptism, is that where like, the Holy Ghost like, came into people? Like, uh, no, that's indwelling, and that's kind of what we're talking about with Amanda. Um, Right, that is also, uh, and we talked about that, I don't know if you were in the room, but we talked about that either last week or the week before that, where in the Old Testament it worked very differently. Yeah. Uh, because the Holy Spirit would come inside of a person, like with Samson, or like with David and Goliath, right. and would strengthen them in a physical way or even you know spiritual way. Um, like with a lot of Moses' speeches or Joshua's speeches and so forth. Uh, and, but then after the job was done, the Holy Spirit would leave that person. So it wasn't like a permanent indwelling in right. the Old Testament. Uh, but in the New Testament, we're talking about misapplied New Testament references to spirit baptism. Spirit baptism is, remember in Acts 2, last week we were talking about when the Holy Spirit came in and filled the room. Right? There's a rushing mighty wind, the cloven tongues of fire. The spirit baptism, that's what it is. When the Holy Spirit comes in and fills the space, you're basically completely submerged in the Holy Spirit like you're completely submerged when you get baptized. Right? And the spirit baptism, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit, but spirit baptisms were used to indicate the beginning of the New Testament age. That was their purpose. And it was used to show that the Holy Spirit is now empowering the Jews in Acts chapter 2. Well, we're going to see probably this week, if we get to it, uh, also in uh, later on, 
in another chapter, we see uh, another Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit baptism uh, take place on a group of Gentiles. And Gentiles, for those of you who don't know, is just everybody who's not a Jew. You, the world is broken up in Jews and Gentiles. And so uh, there was Gentiles that had that spirit baptism to indicate the rest of the world was now capable of receiving the Holy Spirit upon salvation. So that's what spirit baptism is. And what we're going to look at uh, here for a few minutes starting off this morning is verses that have been misapplied to the, to the Holy Spirit. And that's important because it leads us to wrong thinking about other things like even salvation or the church and its natural uh, function. So we're going to start in Romans 6 uh, this morning, and all of these verses are on your sheet there, so um, we can you can look at them here or you can mark them in your Bible if you want to, however you want to do it. Uh, but it says in Romans 6, 3, Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. Right. Uh, so what it says under that is water baptism illustrates that we are in union with his death, burial, and resurrection upon our salvation. But notice what the element of the baptism is in Romans 6.3. What are we being baptized into? What is the water representing in Romans 6.3? Yeah. Mm -mm. Reread the verse. Very top of the page, Romans 6, 3. It's in all caps. Jesus Christ. Yes. The element is Jesus, not the Holy Spirit. That's an important inference to understand because it does teach us. And sometimes it says being baptized into the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it talks about uh, being baptized into Christ or being baptized into one body. But the important thing to take away from this is... Uh, you can't literally be baptized into a body, right? So this is an illustration. It's a figure of speech, in other words. It's not a literal thing. Uh, and the reason that we want to help you understand that is because there are people who will say we're literally baptized in the Holy Spirit uh, and uh, that we're baptized into one body and that there's this universal, invisible church that we're all a part of. And that's just not the case. Right? This is an illustration. And uh, if you're not a part of a local church, you're not a part of a church at all. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, uh, this is one that's misused a lot. A lot, a lot. And it says, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. And I had a, a long argument not really argument, it was more of a debate because it was kind of a nice argument uh, with one of my pastors about this verse. Uh, he was of the idea that it meant that we're all baptized in the same body and therefore we're all part of the universal invisible church, which I thought was an odd thing for an independent Baptist pastor to believe in. But uh, if he believed it, it was because he thought it was in the Bible. So I guess I can't fault him for standing on what he believed in, but... That is not what this verse means. Like we said a second ago, it's figurative. But it says, for by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. But again, notice what is the element we're being baptized into. Jesus Christ. Mm -mm. One body. The body, yeah, one body. 
the body of believers. In other words, all the saved. Um, sometimes referred to as the bride of Christ. Right? But it's, again, not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, in this verse, is the one doing the baptizing. Uh, the meaning here is that, you can, it's uh, in your handout there, the meaning here is that according to, or by the leading and guiding of the Spirit, are all Christians baptized, uh, as in water baptism. The term body is simply an analogy or metaphor uh, of Paul's to illustrate the uh, interrelated or independent nature of church membership and the need for such to come under the headship of Christ and therefore be coordinated as the eyes, ears, hands, etc. of the human body working in union with each other. So this is a metaphor, in other words, that Paul is using uh, to illustrate the independent nature of each member of the body, but its need to come together and function as one in, uh, in union together, right? In other words, uh, one person may function like an eye, one person may function as an ear, one person may function as a foot, and those are all very unique parts of the body, different from each other in many different ways, but they do all come together to work together for the purpose of one whole body. And that's the point Paul's making in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. We're all very unique. We have personality traits that makes us individual from each other. We like different things. We talk different ways. We do different things. We come from different places, but we all come together for the purpose of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul's usage of the term we is simply in reference uh, to commonness of experience. All Christians are led accordingly. And that commonness of experience is uh, our experience in salvation. We all come to salvation through the same uh, way, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. We all have that in common. No matter how different we are in our personalities, we all come to salvation through Jesus. Uh, we all um, read the same scriptures. We all pray to the same Lord God of heaven. So while we're unique, we all have some commonalities. Um, lost my place here. Oh, here we go. This cannot be the spirit baptism that was prophesied and that occurred in Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, and Acts 19. For in all these instances, Christ was the baptizer and the spirit was the element into which they were baptized. The church at Corinth was divided over the issue of water baptism, which we talked about in our series in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. But the context of 1 Corinthians 12 bears out the repeated usage of the phrase by the Spirit, by the same Spirit, or one and the self same Spirit, 11 times prior to verse 13, wherein every one of them have to do with the guiding of the Spirit. Finally, Paul says in verse 27 that the church in Corinth was the body of Christ not a part of such. The term body demands a localized expression. When you imagine a body, you imagine a visual local thing. It's like it's within your vicinity. You can see that body that's standing in front of you. And so that is the illustration he's saying here that that, that church is the body of Christ and that each church, each independent standalone church is a form of the body of Christ in a figurative way. Uh, so the question then becomes, how can all the saved be such when they're never in one local situation? 
Not all the saved have ever, ever gathered together. So we're not talking about all the saved here. Uh, Galatians 3.27 says, For as many of you has been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Notice again, the element is Christ. Water baptism illustrated that we are in union with his death, burial, and resurrection upon salvation. That our standing or position before God is based upon our acceptance of Christ on our behalf. Uh, we have put him on in this essence. Um, there at the end of verse 27 where it says, um, have put on Christ. That's what it means. In salvation, uh, we have taken the Lord Jesus Christ and made him a part of ourselves. Almost like we were incomplete spiritual beings that are only made complete when our hearts unite with Christ. Uh, we all are born with a sin nature. So we all have that distance from God just by nature. And so the only way we can repair the damage done to our spirit, the, our, the schism within our, our very soul, is to put on Christ. As it says there in verse 27, bring him into ourselves and allow him to make us whole. Ephesians 4, 5, again it says, There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called into one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. If this is not water baptism and is, is in fact establishing spirit baptism as an ordinance or a fixed regular occurrence, then by the time Paul was writing to the church in Ephesus, water baptism was no longer to be practiced in that there was only one kind of baptism, right? If we're saying there's one baptism, then it's either the spiritual baptism or it's the water baptism, but it can't be both. The context shows that Paul is again emphasizing unity and the need for the church in Ephesus to function in view of the fact that the church was not to be divided and was to be guided by one spirit, especially in view of the fact that the hope of their calling was all the same, Christ-likeness, that they should all be subject to the same Lord, believing the same faith, having experienced the same baptism in water, etc. So in other words, water baptism unites us. It's all something we went through, and it represented the same thing for each of us. It was a commitment we were making at the moment of salvation uh, to Christ in our life and allowing him to be our Lord, allowing him to be our, our master, our king. Uh, allowing his death and his burial and his resurrection to forever change us. And we all have that in common, and it's all represented in the water baptism. So that's misapplied New, Tef New Testament references. We now have, I know, tongue-tied there. We all, now I have one called All New Testament References Concerning Spirit Baptism. So this is ones that do apply to tests. He's back. Okay. Uh, he 
You see it says there at the very top in blue, it says, In all references to spirit baptism, Christ is said to be the administrator and the spirit, the element by uh, John the Baptist, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Christ, Luke, and Peter. Uh, I, John the Baptist, as the administrator, indeed baptized, this is Matthew 3 in the story of uh, the baptism of Christ, and he's saying, uh, John is the administrator, indeed baptize. And when we talk about baptizing, we're talking about completely submerging in water. And that is important to understand, too. Because when we talk about baptism, um, it is obvious from the context of the story that baptism is a complete submerging that takes place. A whole body going underwater and coming back up. That is what's taking place there. Uh, it's so much obvious to the point that that is why they translated his name to John the Baptist. You see, uh, there was this group of people that was opposing the Catholic Church back in the day the Bible was being translated, and uh, that was a very dangerous thing to do. Uh, people who opposed the Catholic Church were burned alive. Uh, they were tortured. They were killed. Uh, lovely history the Catholic Church has. Uh, but there was this group of people sort of rising back up from the underground that were opposing the kind of baptism that the Catholic Church was teaching. You see, the Catholic Church, and, and you've seen them do it, where they take the little thing and they dip it in the holy water and they sprinkle the water in the crowd, right? Uh, that is, they do sprinkling. They will sometimes do a even a pouring where they take holy water in a pitcher and when they go to... Um, do like a, when a baby's born and they go to uh, bless that child's birth and they will sometimes take water and they'll pour it over the child or they'll pour it over somebody's head uh, for their baptism. Uh, but these are not baptisms. And the this group of people rising up were, were teaching against that, that this isn't baptism. And so they started to get this name. The Catholic Church started to call them Anabaptists or anti-baptizers. And over the course of time, uh, the, the term Anabaptist, we decided was too long, like we do with words. It's, it's too much work to say. I laughed out loud, so we say LOL. You know, it's just what human beings do. It's too much work to say the University of North Texas, so we say UNT. You know, it's just what we do. And so we cut off the name Anna, and we just started being known as Baptists. That's where the Baptist denomination comes from is from the idea that this is baptism the way it's meant to be, completely submerged. And as a matter of fact, that the translators of the King James so saw this and understood this that they called the man John the Baptist because he aligned with the, the doctrine that we were teaching against the Catholic Church at the time. So our doctrine is actually in the Bible. We have an, a man named after our denomination in the Bible because what we believe is so plainly there. I've never seen like a Peter the Pentecost, you know, I've never seen like a Thomas the Catholic, you know, but there's a John the Baptist. Makes you think, doesn't it? Um, he says, I indeed baptize you with water, water being the element, uh, unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He, talking about Christ as the administrator, shall baptize or immerse you 
with the Holy Ghost as the element and with fire. Uh, so that is the spirit baptism being referenced there in Acts 2, Acts 8, and I believe uh, 9 and 10. Uh, Acts 1, or I'm sorry, Mark 1, 8 is kind of the same um, the same verse, uh, different version. He says, I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Um, John 1.33 says, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Uh, baptism by fire, I think we all kind of know what that means. You know, it's a famous little phrase that people say. In other words, uh, through trials and hardship. You know, baptism by fire. Uh, lost my place. For John truly baptized with water, says in Acts 1.5, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. So Acts 1.5, now we see it getting closer, right? And we're talking about it as a distant thing. John the Baptist is mentioning it uh, several times in the Gospels. Acts 1.5 is saying the day is very near now where this Holy Spirit baptism will take place that we talked about last week in Acts 2. Uh, the day of Pentecost is the first occurrence of this, as we talked about last week in Acts 2. Um, a lot of that we already covered, so I'm going to go ahead and skip ahead a little bit. Um, let's see, in Acts 10.44... It says, While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all of them which heard the word. Now, that phrasing, fell on them, is very different than like being saved and the Holy Spirit indwelling you or coming within you. It fell upon them. And that's quite different. That is a Holy Spirit baptism. Um, it says in Acts eleven seventeen. Then remembered I the word of the Lord, and how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. Uh, verification of truthfulness of Paul's ministry to the disciples of John. Acts nineteen six says, When Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Ghost came upon them. In Acts nineteen, another Holy Spirit baptism. Uh, spirits outwardly demonstrated arrival was an indication of New Testament ministry, like I mentioned in the beginning. Um, 1 Peter 1.12, Peter says, Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, uh, Old Testament saints, but unto us, the New Testament believers, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost, sent down from heaven, uh, again, as we talked about in Acts 2. And we've already talked about passages misapplied to the spirit bat baptism. So now we come to the most important handout that I have for you. Uh, the reason we needed to go over those verses is because there's a lot of people out there who believe that the Holy Spirit baptism is something that still takes place. That when a person gets saved, a spirit baptism is still something that happens. And it's not. Uh, that was for the early New Testament church. And it was to verify to the church, to its believers, that uh, the New Testament age had begun. And a lot of these, and as a matter of fact, all of these um, signs 
it's a watermark. Yeah, and a lot of these signs uh, were for the age before. It's a, it's just that yellow spot. Yeah, just a watermark on there. Yeah, I think Josh thought there was like a coffee stain on there or something. No, literally, like I would look at it and look away and I'd be like, is it really there? Is my yes, it's really there. It's like when you're looking directly into a light. Yeah, then you look yeah. at it. Yeah, it does. I saw them all of them, so I just assumed that was a great going crazy, but it's fine. No, it's it's just a watermark. But yeah, so the speaking in tongues things we mentioned last week, the Holy Spirit baptism we just finished talking about, those were for the era before we had a completed Bible. There's a lot of confusion back in that day. That's why you had the apostles. And we're going to go through this in church doctrine. But the apostles went around confirming people to the truth, letting people know what to believe and what not to believe. And they were, excuse me, they were the authority of the New Testament church age. And they needed their signs and miracles so that the New Testament church in that very delicate age would believe that they were who they said they were. Uh, we have a completed Bible now, so we're no longer in need of those things. We're no longer in need of apostles, and we're no longer in need of signs and miracles. So what we have now before us is... Um, our last handout for the day is New Testament Spirit Ministry in the Life of the Believer. And this is each and every way that the Holy Spirit interacts with us in the physical world. Okay, so what we're talking about when we talk about the Holy Spirit is we're taking all of these things we've talked about so far in our whole series of why we believe what we believe. We talked about God the Father and everything that He is. And we talked about the Lord Jesus Christ being God the Son and everything that He is and how He came to earth. But even still, as someone who walked among us, there's still a... Uh, a distance between us and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's still a, a sense of he is still perfection. He is still God. He is still supreme. You know, he is far and above us, uh, as he should be. Uh, so there is, even though he was still here and he was among us and we have his words written down, there was still a kind of a separation there between us and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the Holy Spirit is the most physically applicable part of God to the life of the believer. It is the thing that, that we interact with. It is the part of God that we interact with the most as believers. So basically what I'm saying to you is this morning is this is the most physically applicable part of God that we're talking about today. This part of God affects every day of your life. And so we're going to be talking about the different ministries, uh, New Testament ministries in the life of the believer for the Holy Spirit. And the first one you see here is an indwelling on that left-hand side. Uh, an indwelling is an inward ministry. In other words, it's nothing you can see. Um, most of the ministries of the Holy Spirit are inward. And it's not something you can see. The indwelling is inward, and it represents enlightenment. Right? We talked about a couple of weeks ago how Jesus referred to the Spirit or as the Comforter, but also as what? The Spirit of Truth. The Spirit of Truth, yes. 
I'm just glad you found it. So Jesus refers to the, new te the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth, and it represents enlightenment. Right? And that it does sort of counter some of the things you see in Catholic history. Did you know that at some point during Catholic history, the Catholic Church did not want anybody owning their own Bible? They wanted to be the only ones in possession of a Bible. That led to what we refer to as the Dark Ages. It was a time where people didn't read, they didn't educate themselves, they didn't have any unique independent thoughts. And the coming out of the Dark Ages is, is um, a very important part of history, but also it is every time we wrestle against the authority of the Catholic Church is when we have a period of revelation. Uh, have you ever heard of the Reformation? The Reformation, uh, the, what was it, 95 Theses? That Martin Luther nailed to the door of the... Nobody knows this? Okay. Uh, I think I learned about this in history class in school, like in like regular public high school. Uh, but yeah, this, the, the Reformation is something that you should all be familiar with, not just because of its church history, but also because it's just history. Um, the Reformation is where you have... Um, what do they what do they call it when you're not a Catholic? You're either Catholic or you're Protestant. Protestant, exactly. This is what they call the Protestant movement. And what it's taught is that all the churches that are not Catholic churches came out of this movement from the Reformation. Right? They started questioning why do we believe these things? Why do we answer to the church in this way? Why do they have the authority to decide who gets to go to heaven and who doesn't? Started asking these questions and it led to these things aren't true, and they started going off and starting their own uh, denominations. Like you have Calvinism. You heard of Calvinism. Calvinism comes from a man named John Calvin. I was an offshoot of a, of a Protestant church. Uh, you heard of Lutherans, right? Lutherans come from Martin Luther. If you don't know who Martin Luther is, he's a very important person to know about. Go do a Google search, look up a Wikipedia article or something. Very important person in history. Uh, Martin Luther risked much to open our eyes. Um, but the Baptist Church, and it's my personal belief that the Baptist Church didn't wasn't created by the Reformation. I think we reappeared because of the Reformation. You see, I think the Baptist Church, in my personal opinion, the Baptist Church was the original church created by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that the first attack of the Roman government to destroy Christianity was to kill us all off, scare people from being Christians. And when that didn't work, they decided to absorb it into themselves and turn it into something they could control. And so what ended up happening was we went underground as the true church for many years until the Reformation where we could resurface again. That's my personal opinion. I think that fits in with what you see in history, uh, but you, you read it and you decide for yourself. Uh, so there was a time where that Catholic church decided there didn't need to be any Bibles in people's homes. They wanted it for themselves and that's where you have the Reformation. 
the Catholic Church decided that they didn't want people asking too many questions or, uh, or looking at things that they deemed inappropriate. And so uh, from that, you have, you've ever heard of the Renaissance? Anybody know what the Renaissance was? I, okay, this is all my family sitting here. I have a Discovery Plus login. I want you all to just just go just go click on some things, you know? Go to the history one, just watch a couple of things. It's good times. Uh, don't necessarily just click on the ones that are about American history. You know, the world went on for a long time before America was a country. Great country. I'm a very strong patriot. I love America. We might want to know about some other things, too. Um, the Renaissance was a time for art that really flourished in many different forms. You ever heard of Renaissance paintings? The Renaissance Fair, all of these things came about as a result of an explosion of people wanting to express themselves in ways that the, the church and the, the, the government said they weren't allowed to. And so this, you have this explosion of Renaissance paintings and artwork and sculptures and, and all of these different art forms, music and so forth, that came out as a result of these things, uh, a people desiring to come out of darkness. Right? That's what we're talking about. People want enlightenment. Nobody wants to hide in the darkness. At some point, you want to know what the truth is. You might be scared of the truth for a while. You might not want to know the truth because you're afraid it might hurt you, but at some point, you're going to muster up the courage to want to know what the truth is. The darkness doesn't appeal to us forever, and at some point, you have a yearning for the light. Just as we all have a, a yearning for darkness, we all have within us a desire to step into the light at some point. And that's what the Holy Spirit offers us. For the believer, the Holy Spirit is that enlightenment. It reveals things to you as you sort of rebel against the darkness of your own nature, as you rebel against the sort of darkness you find in the world, the Holy Spirit is that enlightenment because it indwells you. It is an eternal and perpetual source of enlightenment. Uh, you can never use it up. It's never going to go away like it did in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit and its enlightenment is there for you perpetually. There are several references to this that we... Um, I want to look at just a few this morning. Um, Romans chapter 8. Talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8. Uh, and in verse 9. It says, but ye are not in the flesh. Now, obviously, we are in the flesh in the most physical way. What it's talking about here is spiritually. If you're saved, you're a Christian, like the people he's writing to in the book of Romans, then you are not in the flesh. In other words, the flesh does not, is not the only thing within you that drives to govern your life. You have within you a power of enlightenment. You are not in the flesh, but in the capital S, Spirit, Holy Spirit, Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. 
In other words, if you're saved, and it's proving it right here, Romans 8 9 proves to us, if you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit perpetually, forever. Never lose it. It's Romans 8 9, 8, 9. That is also proved to you, you cannot lose your salvation. If you cannot lose the Holy Spirit, you cannot lose your salvation. Right? Because the Bible also tells us how can uh, good dwell with evil? How can light dwell in darkness? Right? How can uh, light does not commune with darkness, the Bible says. So if we could lose our salvation, the Holy Spirit could not stay within us because we would be a being that belongs to the darkness. A being that belongs to the devil. If we belong to the devil, the Holy Spirit could not indwell us. But if it indwells us perpetually from the moment of salvation, then you can't lose your salvation. No matter what you do, you once you're saved, you're always saved. Once you've made that change, the Bible says if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. You can't go back and forth between the new creature and the old creature all the time. Once you've been transformed, you're transformed. Once that caterpillar cocoons into a butterfly, he can't go back into the cocoon and become a caterpillar again. Once you're changed, you're changed. Change is a permanent thing, and that's why it so impacts us. That's why so, so many people are scared of change, because it's so permanent. When something changes, it doesn't go back. And it's the same thing about Christianity. Once you've become that new creature, you can never become the old creature again. Once you're saved, you're always saved. Uh, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter six and verse nineteen, which is uh, around the verse that I was mentioning before, it says, "What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, because a temple is just a, a place that houses the very presence of God." Right, think about in the Old Testament. Where did God dwell primarily? Where did he, where did he reveal himself at most of the time? As Moses was uh, going to meet with God, it was the tabernacle of congregation outside of the congregation of Israel that would dwell with the presence of God, and God would call Moses or Moses and Aaron into the tabernacle of congregation to meet with him physically. And it was these houses of God where people met with God. Anybody remember the story where uh, Jacob met with God? Remember the name of the city that he met with God at? Was that the one where he tried to fight God? Yes, he wrestled with God all night. Yeah, where God uh, got tired of wrestling with him, so he touched the hollow of his thigh and basically removed the bone. Yeah, removed the marrow. And they renamed it something. It's Bethel. Does anybody remember what the name Bethel means? It means the house of God, exactly. That is where people meet with God, is in the house of God. Uh, in the temple, that's where David would meet with God. That's where King Saul would meet with God, was in the tabernacle. And later on, as after King Solomon built it, they would meet with him in the temple. So the house of God is where God dwells primarily. So we are referred to as the temple of God because that is where the Holy Spirit dwells permanently. 
is within our physical body. Your body is the ornament that the Holy Spirit chooses to wear. As people see you, they see the housing of the Holy Spirit. That is why you should be cautious how you treat your body. You are housing God. What should a temple look like? What should a church look like? It should be a palace to the greatest of us all, the Holy Spirit, to, of God himself. Don't graffiti the house of God. The Bible tells us in the book of Leviticus that we should not mark our bodies. <clears throat> Tattoos are like graffiti on the temple of God. These people with all these different earrings going all over the place. These guys, you've seen those guys with those spacers in their ears? You know, they've seen some of them. They've got like lip piercings and tongue piercings and piercings I can't even mention to you this morning because we're a clean church. Let's not defile the temple of God, which is your body. I don't know why it is that people in my generation treat their bodies the way we used to treat our binders in middle school. If, if you know, you know. But uh, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is something that affects the decisions we make in life because we are the temple of God. And it's not just piercings and tattoos. It's also uh, the way you eat, uh, the way you exercise or the lack thereof. And being the temple of God should affect those decisions as well. Uh, it's about choosing to eat healthy because that's taking care of the temple of God, right? It's about getting regular exercise because that's tending to the temple of God, right? Being healthy, uh, not because you want to live forever, but because for your first of all being responsible with the body God gave you, but also secondly, because you are the temple of God and you reflect what people think God is because God is housed within your very body. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. We already talked about baptism. The filling of the Holy Spirit is, uh, I don't have time to go through all the references for sake of time. I, I really encourage you guys to go and sort of look some of these up on your own time. Um, I just don't have enough hours. Two hours on a Sunday is not enough to give you guys everything you need for a Christian life. Uh, so to take these things, I beg you to go and sort of look some of these things up for yourself. But the filling of the Holy Spirit is different than the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and you need to understand that. It's inward too, but uh, it represents enablement. Uh, when the Holy Spirit fills you, it enables you to do things you couldn't normally do, like Josh mentioned before with Samson, uh, or like we mentioned a couple weeks ago with David. The Holy Spirit was filling those men and enabling them to do things they couldn't normally do. Uh, when you have something big that you need to do and you feel apprehensive, you feel self-conscious, allowing yourself to receive more of God's Spirit, just opening your heart up to God more than you normally do, and allowing yourself to be filled with the Holy Spirit in that way will enable you to do the things you couldn't normally do. I used to love this show. It came up last week, and if you, you're mad at me for watching the show as a kid, you can get over it. Uh, remember that show, Yu-Gi-Oh? Uh -huh. 
I used to love that show, and it was a really cool little premise. It was like an anime, but it was this kid had like a, a puzzle around his neck, and when he'd get in trouble, the the spirit of the pharaoh of Egypt would show up and would sort of help him get out of trouble with his little magic powers or whatever. And it was a wonderful little show, very powerful, strong, uh, good moral stories in there and everything, a really great story and all that. But it so reminds me of the Holy Spirit. Because we like that we have the Holy Spirit permanently dwelling within us. And when we need him, we call upon him. He will fill us and enable us when we allow him to. That filling of the Holy Spirit. The sealing of the Holy Spirit mentioned in 2 Corinthians 1.21 uh, is about engagement. Uh, imagine uh, a marriage proposal. When you're engaged, that is a, a sealing. You are making a commitment to get married uh, you're no longer out there looking for a spouse. You're no longer out there looking for the person you'll spend the rest of your life with. Once you're engaged, you're sealed in with that person forever. right? And that is what we're talking about with the Holy Spirit. We're sealed, it says, until the day of, of repentance. Uh, we are engaged with God, and we're not looking to break that seal. Nobody can break that seal. Once we're saved, we're always saved. And then, unfortunately, there is also grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit. You can do things to grieve the Holy Spirit, you can do things to quench the Holy Spirit, and these things weaken the power that God gives you. God gives you power in this life, and as long as you go against what God wants, you grieve and quench the Holy Spirit, and it weakens your connection to Him, and it weakens the power He gives you in this life. And it represents estrangement. Uh, this is relationally alienated, but not positionally removed. Uh, God is always dwelling within you if you're a saved Christian. But if you quench or grieve the Holy Spirit, you are limiting His ability to empower you in this life. Uh, so that is, I think, all the time we have and then some. So we will be back at 11 o'clock for the Sunday morning service. Thank you for watching.